This is the Criterion Cast. This is Trevor Barrett, and I am here tonight with David Blakesley. Hey, David. Hey, Trevor. And Scott Nye. Hey, Scott. Ahoy. We are here tonight, gathered in the Criterion Cast brownstone drawing room. David has brought some of his <laughs> best cigars. Scott has just treated us with a musical number, which is beautiful. Scott, thank you. And now we're going to settle into some conversation about William Wyler's The Heiress. Uh, I will go ahead and read how Criterion describes the film on their box. It says, Directed with a keen sense of ambiguity by William Wyler, this film, based on a hit stage adaptation of Henry James's Washington Square, pivots on a question of motive. When shy, emotionally fragile Catherine Sloper... Olivia de Havilland, in a heartbreaking Oscar-winning turn, the daughter of a wealthy New York doctor, begins to receive calls from the handsome spendthrift Morris Townsend, Montgomery Clift. She becomes possessed by the promise of romance. Are his smoldering professions of love sincere, as she believes they are? Or is Catherine's calculating father, Ralph Richardson, correct in judging Morris a venal fortune-seeker? A graceful drawing-room drama boasting Academy Award-winning costume design by Edith Head, The Heiress is also a piercing character study riven by emotional uncertainty and lacerating cruelty in a triumph of classic Hollywood filmmaking at its most psychologically nuanced. And um, I'm the one who chose to do this one, though I kind of feel like, David, you would have been very happy to talk about it as well after you watched it. Well, I am happy to talk about it, and uh, yeah, this is, I think, a pretty mutual agreement here. We're all on board with it. I'm actually curious. I don't know if I've heard how Scott feels about the film, so maybe we'll just start with um, with uh, uh, the big surprise for, for me, anyway. Scott, did you enjoy William Wyler's The Heiress? I like that this is like a regular thing we do, where we always throw it first to the person whose opinion we know the least about. <laughs> Seems like <laughs> what I tend to do, I think David tends to do it as well. Anyway, uh, I, I did like The Heiress very much. It's one of those that, uh, as soon as it was announced for Criterion, all of my uh, classic film fans were like, oh, you guys don't know what you're in for. It's so good. And then when it came out, everyone seen it for the first time. I was like, it really is so good. And then I was like, okay, I'm sure it's... And then it really is so good. It's rare, I think, in the... Uh, sort of hype culture that builds up in cinephile circles for something to really deliver so thoroughly. And it delivers on so many levels. I think just right away, uh, what struck me was the opening title card that's like a hundred years ago. It's such a perfect way to phrase it. It's not exact. It's the way you kind of refer to a time that almost seems like it didn't exist. And so much of the heiress feels like kind of divorced from a sense of reality. It feels like a memory. It feels like a story that somebody's telling about their family that happened a long time ago and the way that he kind of that Weiler and the screenwriters kind of fold that in with a very I think tension-filled storyline where there's constantly a notion of suspense going on that drives the narrative forward I mean I love melodrama as a genre but this is an unusually I think driven and involving one uh, just because it's so wrapped up in both the sense of customs of the time uh, and the drama that fuels those in both uh, the immediate needs and the needs they're denying themselves. One of the things I'm looking forward to discussing is the way that uh, the characters cling so tightly to their notions of uh, uh, decor and manners and stuff, even when it runs counter to what they really want and desire out of life. And 
the kind of prisons people build for themselves. And there's so much going on in the film in addition to it being, I think, a pretty thrilling narrative. So yeah, I really like this film quite a bit. Ooh, good. I'm <laughs> I'm excited to, to chat a little bit further. David, why don't you give us your opening uh, uh, opening shot? Yeah, well, you know, I'm really on board with what Scott said, but I am impressed by the the sheer quality of just every aspect of this of this production. You know, the acting, uh, three really legendary leads, and then I'll throw in Miriam Hopkins as a fourth in the mm-hmm. support role, um, but also just the uh, you know you know the set designs, the the use of the architecture uh Weiler's impeccable uh stylistic command and then the story itself uh this feels like Scott said like a a far away time and place almost a mythical or legendary era and yet the characters feel very true to life and even though the customs and the costumes and perhaps some of the uh, class structure uh restrictions and and boundaries that these characters have to you know navigate through aren't exactly analogous to our own times uh the the underlying impulses the uh, the emotional tensions and the the mistrust and the earnestness i mean there's 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 the cynicism but there's this sincerity that runs through all of these characters uh, they're all very defensible perspectives as to why they choose to act the way they do. And yet their their fates, their outcomes are all incredibly tragic. And they all have a very legitimate claim to have been profoundly wronged <laughs> by the circumstances they find themselves in. Like they, they didn't deserve this. Life should have treated them better. And yet this is just kind of how things land uh, with all these conflicting motives uh, you know, run into their collision course. And so, you know, everything is just so, so masterfully presented. Uh, it's enjoyable, it's entertaining, it's fascinating. And it's, it, it touches those personal notes as well. I think we all can relate on some level to the dilemmas that these various characters find themselves in. And so, yeah, it is a very uh, perfectly realized film. Yeah, I I loved it. I have actually never read Henry James' Washington Square, which is uh, the kind of the basis for this screenplay. It was the basis for the the play, which was then the basis for the screenplay. And it says in there that it was suggested by Washington Square. And so I didn't really know the story. Um, But I've read enough Henry James to know that there were definitely going to be some troubles but man, I really hoped that the troubles would be primarily between um, father and daughter and that they wouldn't interfere with the beautiful romance that was going on on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because at the very beginning, you know, we meet Catherine and she is so awkward and yet you somehow Olivia de Havilland makes you still want her to get what she deserves as far as romance and something in life because, you know, some of her inner beauty just shines through and her sincerity and her own desires. But she's set herself up as basically um, a spinster and she kind of resigned herself to that role as the film begins. And we'll get into some of the reasons for that and the things that Ralph Richardson, um, as Dr. Sloper, uh, does to uh, push her into that. But when she starts her relationship with Morris, 
it took me off guard, you know. It wasn't until Dr. Sloper started to suggest that he was in it for the money that I thought, oh, no. Now I, everything that I'm watching, it, oh, you tainted, tainted the whole it, pool. Yes, you know, like everything was beautiful. This was a great thing. And you just ruined everything, Dr. Sloper. And I think that's how the film and the story kind of works anyway with by showing that kind of aspect of, of life. When, when doubt starts to seep in, you know, he's in it just for the money. He doesn't really love me. Oh, it, it's... It's hard to it's hard to go back to that state of innocence, um, but this is the second uh, Henry James adaptation that we are all together to talk about. We talked about Jack Clayton's *The Innocence*, which is an adaptation mm-hmm. of of um, *The Turn of the Screw* by Henry James, and the ambiguity in in that was something that I brought up, and I'm sure we talked about in that episode. And I think the heiress um, does play with that amb- same kinds of ambiguity, um, where we don't necessarily know all of Morris Townsend's motives as it all begins. We just start to suspect them. And we don't necessarily know, you know, everything's so complicated with Dr. Sloper's feelings for his daughter. Is he really that cruel? Well, yes, he is, but there's something there. You know, there's some kind of love for his child. And then Catherine's own um, development. So I know we're kind of on a short timeline tonight. So we we've introduced i think the story with the the um criterion blurb so maybe scott what are some things that you want to to discuss maybe we can just start digging into topics rather than any kind of um you know running through the film in in sequential order or anything like that yeah sure i think like i said uh, the manners are kind of the thing that stood out to me most immediately in part because I was kind of charmed by them at first, you know, as we kind of find our way through the story, everyone is so well-spoken and so well-behaved. And like, even when you sense that there could be tension on the ground to find a way to counter it or just make the situation more palatable uh, anytime that there's the possibility of, like when uh, Morris comes over for dinner the first time, you can tell that the father isn't totally charmed with him, but they still manage to all have a pleasant dinner together. I, I find that very appealing the way that they always have a topic of conversation or a way around something uh, and a way to get into each other's lives without, uh, you know, being even like slightly rude to one another, even though Morris does turns out pick up on the social cues of the time. Um, (laughs) They're still there, right? I mean, he walks away going, your father doesn't like me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I don't know. There's just something about the way that Weiler lets us kind of dwell in that whole milieu that I found very, uh, charming, but then by the time it gets towards the end, you realize everything um, that the father has kind of built up, and all these things that he hasn't said because he's kind of tried to spare his daughter. And if he just had a conversation with her, like you know, ten, fifteen years ago, about you know how to be more socially adept and you know kind of find her way through life, but it's all built up, so he has no choice but to say that she's just this dull person who he can't stand to be around, and. Like the way that those manners have become a prison for all of them and the way they continue to be, you know, she could too have been more straightforward with Morris and found a way to uh, ingratiate herself or to really just confront him about what he wants. But instead she's just stuck leaving him out in the rain and marching up the stairs alone because that's kind of 
the prison she's built for herself and the only sense of freedom she can find is to kind of cut everyone out. Uh, and there's so much kind of inherent tragedy in the way that everyone in this film behaves. No one really makes the right decision. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way, the way they're trying to fulfill expectations for themselves, both the the expectations they have for themselves and the expectations society has for them. I have a question just on, as kind of a follow-up. Do you think, uh, of course, there have been plenty of people who have married for money and who have, who have um, courted for money. What do you think was so different about this one? I mean, was it that she cottoned on herself? I mean, why, why couldn't she have just said, you know, he is still a really nice man. Maybe he does love me. I, I don't know. There's, I don't know. His own cruelty, I guess, but what... I'm I'm not well, articulating because, it particularly well, but just no. The, I think it's because she has such romantic notions built up because mm-hmm. her mm. father's never or anyone in her family has never really been honest with her about you know where all their money comes from or like just the extent to which society functions on money. Uh, you know, she it seems like she's very sheltered and just has these kind of girlhood notions of romance that she never really had a chance to have crushed. You know, I think most of us we have some romance in our younger years that even in some small way crushes us effectively so that we have, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. managed expectations for the future. And she never, it seems like she never really had that or had any sense of disillusionment. So, so these disillusionments on both her father and Morris hit her. Yeah, for sure. So for him to come in and kind of sweep her off her feet, like she has no reason to expect anything else. I think the father, you know, if we if we go back in time, kind of project ourselves into the you know backstory here, we've got a father, a husband who's grieving the loss of his wife, uh, whom he's idealized in the subsequent years, and as a result of his kind of idealization, putting her on a pedestal, uh, you know, the daughter has really suffered. So you've really got a, a father and daughter combination of of two individuals who are really severely emotionally stunted and i think the wealth and the class and the prestige of the doctor's you know station in life and his you know obligation to protect his daughter and uh, there's a selfish motive of protecting his fortune his estate and not letting some young scoundrel uh you know just come in and and snatch it out from underneath him uh uh, the, the father feels like he's earned this, he's put this together through his own toil and his shrewd investments and whatever else he's had to do to, you know, enter this realm of society. And he just, you know, his pride and his, his ego just cannot allow some, you know, some young uh, aspirant to just kind of step in and, and snatch it away. It's uh, interesting. His, it, yeah. It's almost like for the father, he will he will let his daughter suffer because of his pride in that way like um yeah he could he could back off and just allow this to go on but his pride is more important than her and And he almost uses her as a right as a um sorry david i keep talking but he almost uses her as an excuse um you know like i'm protecting her when really it is mostly just about his own pride right and lavinia i think is the voice of of sensible emotional reason in all of this you know she's saying you know he can be a good husband for her uh he does have a 
a zeal and you know he's an attractive man and he's he's passionate he's got ardor and he's and he's bold enough to break through the barriers that the father has put around his daughter i mean there are other gentlemen who could have courted her and tried to maneuver into the fortune but they just they can't because she doesn't have those kind of social flair that that perhaps are looking for on on a little bit more of that relational level uh, so yeah, so how much is Morris just posing and you know just a cunning maneuver here to to get at the get at the money? I I I don't think he's as as a cold-hearted mercenary as as the father sees him, or even as audiences might be tempted to, um, you know, just because of the way the story unfolds. Uh, it's it's just all these elements just kind of you know play up play off of each other to put each party in kind of the worst possible light. But I, I feel like the father's position, you know, the doctor, he's 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 in a defensible place here. Now, he, he certainly, you know, the cruelty towards his daughter, the bluntness and the incessant comparison uh, of the actual young woman that he's raised to the mother and wife who's now dead, that's, that's really cruel and excessive and un- unnecessary and counterproductive. And yet he's a man who's perhaps never resolved his own grief. And so, yeah, all, all of that's there. We, yeah, Morris is the mystery here. We don't exactly know where he's coming from, but he does seem to have a, a self-awareness. And when he's being, you know, grilled a bit by Dr. Sloper, he it doesn't feel like he's, you know, giving you a evasive, deceptive routine. He speaks candidly. He's the one who brought up about how he kind of wasted his inheritance. <laughs> He's Cleverly. not trying to hide anything. Cleverly. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, in one of the supplements on the disc, they talked about how, I can't remember, either in the play or in the novel, uh, Morris's mercenary tendencies were made much more explicit. I think it's a really smart idea to kind of downplay that. You know, there's enough there. You know, he's so overstated in his affections for her, and he does kind of often look around the house as though like, oh, I could set up shop here. This this suits me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's just something about his general character that doesn't feel as straightforward and honest. But yeah, there's nothing explicit either, which I think is really smart. So you can both kind of indulge Catherine's desires for him and also uh, her father's assumptions about him. Uh, it kind of works both ways. And even at the end when he abandons her, you can look at that and say, now, and this is where I think it's very problematic for him because he doesn't do it with her permission. He doesn't talk to her about it. He just simply leaves. But at the same time, you can look at it as, I did not want you to live a life where I had taken away your inheritance. If your father's going to disinherit you, I really couldn't live that way. I couldn't, I couldn't be the person who stripped you of all of that and we abandon, you know, make you kind of live in, in penury rather than in this kind of uh, more lavish lifestyle. I just, you know, don't want to be the one who does that. I think that's not right necessarily, but it is. it does still give you, and it could give her, and it certainly gives Aunt Lavinia, a reason to, to look around his past behavior if you just want to accept it and maybe let the illusion slide back over your eyes a little bit. Yeah, a case can be made that he he did not elope with her to save her against her own worst impulse. Now, he could have communicated. He could have done something to, you know, take the edge off of this 
horrific, you know, colossal disappointment. You know, th those scenes of her waiting are just pure anguish, you know, uh, when when she's expecting him to, to make his call and she's got her bags packed and, of course, nothing happens. And it really, uh, for for a, a, a lot of nothing happening on screen, the, the palpable tension and, and sorrow is just it's kind of overwhelming. Uh, it's again, aching, just the it really it's, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, you just know that the the poignant you know loss of that moment has just you know branded her heart i mean she will never get over that and again it's but it's it's her pride and stubbornness that uh prohibits her from exercising any kind of leniency or understanding it's like she's just been loading up for retaliation <laughs> ever since and of course she gets it at the end and i know there is a an angle here of, of um, uh, you know, the woman's empowerment to choose her own destiny and to not give in to this pleading, desperate man who, you know, perhaps is driven by mercenary motives, but she's she's locking herself up just as much as she's locking him out, and it, I I don't I think it's it's reductionistic to say this is a pure win for her, uh, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what I was kind of getting at the beginning where as much as she's kind of the sympathetic character and we feel so much of the story through her and can identify with her probably the most, uh, she does have opportunities to turn it around and they're not opportunities that she takes. Um, not to say that the whole situation is entirely her fault. It's just part of this whole cycle of everyone being unable to, you know, resolve the situation, kind of give up a bit of their pride in the process. Ironically, the person who probably gives up their pride the most is Morris, who, you know, comes close to debasing himself by the end. Um, but even <laughs> then, like, he can't fully be on. It still feels like he's, I mean, she's kind of right. He's giving her the same runaround that he did the first time. Um, if, and if he could just be completely honest and, you know, say that he was cowardly and ran away or just like some version closer to the truth, we just never feel like we quite get it. Yeah, it's interesting. He is so articulate. He's a, a brilliant speaker throughout the whole play <laughs> or the whole Pretty the whole slick. movie. You know, he he really does know what to say. But you're right, Scott. There at the end, he just it it's the first time that it all of a sudden rings a little bit more hollow, and you can see through it that this is this is scripted now. This is what he's doing in order to bring her back in, and she sees through it. Or at least that's the way I read it. I I do think there is a a way to look at it, as we said earlier, of him being genuine, that he didn't want to ruin her relationship with her father so permanently, and he didn't want to be the reason that she lived in poverty, but he he doesn't he doesn't really address his own, you know, cowardice and his own, you know, what he did to her, and so she sees right through it. I don't know if she would have ever accepted it one way or the other, but at least there was maybe a little more of a chance. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If they had gotten together, there certainly would have been baggage that way too, you know. Yeah, that's actually and, and a harder. That's almost harder yeah. to imagine as an ending or a coda to the film of them actually getting together and right. living that out than them locking each other out or her locking him out and and walking up to her own room. Yeah, but it, but there's still an analogy there to couples who have been through um, 
you know, betrayal. Maybe they've made that commitment earlier in life and now they've been together and yet some kind of, you know, uh, heart-wrenching disappointment, uh, betrayal, infidelity, whatever the case may be has happened between one partner and the other and you've got to find a way to reconcile. I mean, again, there is a difference between being married or not married and, and all of that. But, uh, you know, there's, again, even for couples who maybe, you know, have have crossed that threshold of commitment and yet are still having experiences where one partner or the other has done something that is close to unforgivable, you know, how do you work through that? Uh, how do you uh, reconcile with the fact that you know that you're, you're, uh, your significant other is a pretty slick talker <laughs> and can can say all the right things and yet you question the sincerity of it or is there just a desperate settling that has to happen so that you can resume some level of uh domestic tranquility so that you know this there's there's a lot of angles here that i think uh you know many viewers can say yeah there's a different place in time but you know bits of my story are wrapped up in all of this as well yeah, I'm actually stumbling over my words tonight, I think partly because there's so many things that come to mind even as I tra tra go down one pathway. I think of all the other ways that it kind of shoots <laughs> off and the other ways that this film opens up yeah. to different interpretations. Um, for example, earlier you kind of put Lavinia as the voice of reason. Um, and I think we can counter that by... Is she herself selfishly in love with her niece's romance and potential for romance? Because she's a widow, Lavinia. Um, mm -hmm. You kind of get the sense that her her husband, you know, the, the preacher, maybe wasn't the most thrilling companion. And I love the part at the beginning where they're off to the ball and she doesn't know if she should go or not. And then she thinks, well, I can mourn there just as well as here. <laughs> You know, she's excited to go yeah, out yeah. and and have fun. And how much of her encouragement is truly seeking after Catherine's best interests? And how much of it is similar to Dr. Sloper is her own desire for a certain thing to play out? You know, her own story mm -hmm. and her own desires are kind of taking precedence, her own way of seeing it, I guess. And, you know, when you kind of step away, it's like, well, you can't look at it any differently. She has no other perspective other than her own. It is easy to mix up with, I'm looking after my niece, or Dr. Sloper, I'm looking after my daughter, because they truly are. They, they really are. I mean, this is a legitimate concern for Dr. Sloper. He turns out to be probably exactly right. The problem is she sees more his selfishness and his own pride, and that's where she feels the betrayal with him. She does, you know, it, it, she can't see the protectionism because it's probably not the genuine emotion. And I kind of feel the same way about Lavinia. By the end, I think Catherine resents Lavinia and her attempts to help her find romance because she sees them more as romance for romance sake. You know, live the story, let the illusion slip over you. And she just no longer wants any part of that and can no longer see anybody looking out for her best interest. It, she's got to do it herself. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's, I mean, Anne Lavinia, I think, is a great character. And she's one of those people who probably fashions herself as more honest and forthright than the people she surrounds herself with. You know, she probably fashions herself as something of a truth teller, but certainly has her own shares of 
uh, illusion that she's passing over for herself and on to other people, which certainly couldn't have helped Catherine growing up, you know, without a mother, Aunt Lavinia would have been like the primary female influence in her life and probably built up a lot of the romantic notions that Catherine clearly has. Uh, and this is a great time to say that I adore Miriam Hopkins in this movie oh, and in yeah. most movies. I, she's one of my absolute favorite actresses of the kind of the classic Hollywood era. And uh, I'm really impressed with the way she was able to continue her career kind of past her prime years. She was such a great star in those early Ernst Lubitsch movies and so many other movies, some of which still don't have, you know, great distribution. I saw a great film at TCM Fest a couple of years ago where she plays this kind of like uh, heiress on a farm and she's very much out of place. She's a city girl. It's just an incredibly moving film. Um, and here, I mean, she's it's pretty much a straightforward comic role from the start. She's constantly the comic relief and she's such a character. And even the people in her life, you know, Austin and Catherine and others seem to view her as kind of one of those people who's always on, you know, she always is not quite being her honest self, but there's something so compelling about her as a character that they can't put her in her place either. You know, they like having her around. She's great company and she's very lively. Um, but Hopkins plays it in a way that allows for kind of that sense of mourning. Maybe it's that opening line that kind of cued me into it but the sense of everything that she's lost in her life and that she's trying to kind of fulfill through others as a way of substituting, but also finding genuine gratification. You know, she, I do buy that she genuinely loves Catherine and wants the best for her. And this is kind of the only way she can see it, which is its own kind of tragedy. Well, I, and I think that's where you get into some of the, the class dynamics here, which is Lavinia is saying, you know what, this might be Catherine's one shot at it, you know, as far as finding a, a man who has some degree of passion for her. I mean, she sees, you know, uh, the future of this woman, single, wealthy, but alone, isolated, bitter, you know, cut off, socially awkward. Um, and she's trying to save her from what she might consider a dismal fate. And experience as she is and seeing how you know high class upper crust marriages tend to go she's i think she's got a realistic calculation that says this is about as good as it's going to get you know and and why do we let our uh selfish protection of the fortune or our um you know our own kind of hard-heartedness uh, because life's done you wrong why would you let that stand in the way of at least companionship and perhaps a a uh, a growing uh and deepening authenticity i mean there there may be some artifice there may be some uh mild hypocrisy or uh, shadow dancing going on between um morris and Catherine uh in terms of how they really feel about each other versus the professions of love that have flowed so freely in this whirlwind courtship uh, but, you know, again, life is a, a constantly flowing stream. And if Catherine passes this one up, there's no guarantee that there's going to be some more, uh, you know, stately, uh, mature, sober-minded gentleman uh, to take Morris's place. So, you know, these are these are real decisions with consequences that have to be made. And so, you know, the viewer is, is left to imagine what Catherine's future might be. But uh, I think it's going to be a difficult path. Well, I like how you kind of compare it to a river because that's also part of the problem here is it, 
it got poisoned, you know, and that poison lingers on in the water too. There's no way for for her to go back to the pure state that the river was in when she first was courting Morris. Um, I did want to touch on uh, Miriam Hopkins just a little bit more. Um, a total agreement with what Scott said, um, with her being the comic relief and such. But I do want to point out, and I'm not saying you suggested otherwise, but Scott, but um, she's also she is grounded in moments where you know she does know what's going on. She's not a flighty, um, you know, just romantic aunt. She's genuinely excited when um, she's up in bed and and uh, Catherine goes up to wake her up and tell her, you know, the news with Morris. You know, I love that moment. Miriam Hopkins just can play it so genuinely. But when Dr. Sloper talks about the visit with Morris's sister, he, after Morris's sister leaves, and it's so devastating when she's, oh, you know, Morris is great, I'm sure he's fine. When she, on, on just viewing, on just seeing Catherine, you see her countenance go, oh, Morris isn't being completely honest here. You know, it's yeah, so yeah. sad that that's the, the way that it judges, and yet it's true. Um, but afterwards, Dr. Sloper talks to Aunt Lavinia and the other aunt, I can't remember her name, and they know what's going on, and they caution Dr. Sloper about ruining Catherine's chance. And they do it because they totally understand what's going on. They totally, you know, they're, they're seeing through it. And there's just that moment of grounding where that concern is, is more on the surface than just the desire that Catherine have romance. It's about Catherine's heart. Can she take it? And I, I, I think Miriam Hopkins is, well, it's kind of tough to pick out of the four. I'm glad you included her when you mentioned the three stars and you added her as one because... Each of the four of them, I think, just do a tremendous job. Ralph Richardson should have, I think, won the Academy Award that year. He was nominated. I don't even know who won. I just think it should have been Ralph Richardson. <laughs> you know, it's hard for me to imagine someone else doing better. Um, Olivia de Havilland did win for her turn here, and and I think that her transition is is wonderful. And I do think that um, Montgomery Clift is probably one of the best roles I've ever seen him in in this one, where I genuinely um, was attached to him and cared for him and thought he was pathetic and despised him and yet, you know, just adored that character. And I think he pulls it off so perfectly. Yeah, it's kind of, this is one of the reasons why I love Montgomery Clift is he kind of came up in the same era as Brando and James Dean, but unlike those guys he didn't seem to have any need to prove his own kind of machismo you know their early performances are so rooted in this kind of like grand theatricality and huge gestures and yelling and very like earthy manly things uh but his early roles like here and in red river which we did an episode about that i believe Mm -hmm. um yes we did many years ago uh they're kind of like sweet and sensitive and pretty low-key but every decision is so on point i mean i love the little gesture he does when he's bringing the two drinks and he sees her dancing with another man he kind of like puts his thumbs up and gives a little shrug like Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. half what's the deal half what are you gonna do um there's just so many small moments like that that are the evidence of the kind of work of method acting without, you know, showing the work kind of thing. It's in some ways a very restrained performance, but there's so much thought put into every line. You know, you can see the years he spent learning kind of the manners of the time and the way he's kind of tried to break out of that. And you can see the 
years he spent adrift in Europe of spending all the money and kind of the shame he feels about that. But also kind of, you know, those were clearly pretty good years for him that he kind of looks Mm -hmm. back on fondly. And none of this is explicated, but it's all kind of embedded within the performance, which kind of makes, I think, the way he's trying to sell himself to Catherine feel authentic. You know, there's every reason we have to doubt his intentions, but also there could be some genuine feeling in there that, you know, maybe Catherine isn't the woman of his dreams, but she represents a lifestyle that he wants to live. And, you know, maybe Aunt Lavinia is right that he could, you know, without fully romantically loving her, he could still look after their life together pretty well because he's learned the lessons of both having money and not. And yeah, I mean, all of this is just kind of wrapped up in the performance. It's not explicated in the text, but it's all there. And I think that's really, really smart stuff. Yeah, I I completely believe that as a character, Morris has convinced himself that he can bring something special and unique into Catherine's life that uh, no other gentleman appears willing or able to do, and that he genuinely sees something in her that he feels is attractive, maybe good for him. I mean, I, I, I I can almost just you know, see the mental gears grinding where he's convincing himself that this is an honorable pursuit, that it's not just about the money. He sees something in her that she can bring to him and he brings something to her that she doesn't have uh, in her current situation so that his conscience is pretty clear in all of this. And I think I think it's a very uh, wonderful portrayal of the kind of situation that an ardent young man uh, who is looking to, you know, improve his lot in life and uh and again going back to that class thing it's like hey you know there's a fortune out there to be made and you just got to get it that's that's really the bottom line you know and if you apply your skills your charm your looks your physique and your willingness to at least talk a good romantic game uh in a way he has earned whatever you know uh financial windfall might come out of all of this and uh, and then I, I think there's also just the the pursuit. You know, once you set your mind on winning somebody over or attaining something, uh, on it, you're just gonna you're just gonna keep pushing until you get it. <laughs> and I think that's that's the other aspect of the of the 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 youthful male ego that he captures very well. Likewise, on the other end of life, Ralph Richardson is just so clipped and so disciplined. He's so weary. Like every time he's on screen. You can just see he's scanning the landscape for threats, you know. And when he sees this young interloper strolling on in, uh, yeah, he is on high alert, and he's he's uh, you know very defensive. He's he's reading all those signals and kind of applying the most skeptical interpretation that he can come up with because that's the lessons that life has taught him is that there's you know there's glad handers and smooth talkers that are out there that are going to try to get between me and my fortune and and perhaps use my daughter as the, as the key to get in as a result there's probably not a man good enough or sincere enough because the father's uh the doctor's you know esteem of his own daughter is so low that he almost doubts that anybody could ever genuinely care for her and so he's you know whether consciously or not kind of painted himself in a corner where uh you know nobody can approach without you know withering condescension and uh and that may be one of the reasons why uh nobody has really pursued Catherine because they just cannot get past the guardian at the gates interesting well, and also 
also because he clearly loved his wife so much and has such romantic memories of her. Yes. It seems yes. like even though he posits marriage as a very uh, grounded, you know, sensible decision, the idea of any kind of relationship other than the one he had, even though marriages of the time that were, you know, financially based in some way, not ruthlessly so, but sort of a partnership as much as a relationship were, you know, not at all uncommon, <laughs> but he doesn't of seem course. like to have that room for, to understand that. Or, or maybe he somewhat does, but Morris is someone who has absolutely nothing in his mind to bring to Catherine. He may, it, he doesn't believe in his love, but Morris, even worse, has no assets <laughs> to bring to right. the table. Yeah, there's, there's nothing on the father's side to say, yeah, this is a good match. He's the wrong category, I think is what he said, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I, maybe a quick question that's purely hypothetical, and I don't know if this will mean too much, but would things have been better had Dr. Sloper simply let things go on? You know, Catherine has her illusion of romance. Morris has his wealth, and presumably he's going to be a decent man to her, hopefully. Let's just assume he will. Um, Is that such a bad thing? Because it definitely is an illusion still. It is a life set up on something that's not truly what you think it is. And in some ways that feels like a bad idea. At the same time... Look at where it's led them when she chooses brutal honesty, or at least mm-hmm. the cruelty that comes with that stripping away of illusions and absolutely not accepting the the worst parts of people's motives in uh, light of seeing the best parts of their motives. Is, is, is that really a better thing, or, or is there a really good way of, of working around that? And then... You know, mm. I think you can kind of look in your own life. How many illusions do we accept just because it sure makes things easier? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, there's that crucial moment where the doctor had pretty much written it off. Like, well, there's nothing I can do here. And he assumes that they are going to get married and they're going to live off of her 10000 And he'll leave the rest of his fortune to the clinic. But Morris himself says, oh, no, we can't do that. Um, I will not marry you without your father's blessing. In other words, you know, we had our ticket out and Morris could have seized that, but he says, no, I can't marry you against your father's wishes. Now, is that a calculated parlay to say, well, I'm either going to get the full 30000 or nothing at all? Or is it truly honorable because he knows that, you know, there's a brief happiness at being married, but then there's all this years and years potentially of, of tension and regret with the falling out of the relationship between this father and daughter who, you know, are in some ways very codependent on each other. And now all of a sudden, you know, Morris realizes he's taken the father away from the daughter or vice versa. And, you know, that's kind of a bad situation to step into because he's going to have to take all that responsibility as well. So again, these, these very subtle mixed motives, um, I think they coexist with the, alongside each other. It's not an either or. It's like it's all there together, and that is uh, that. That's what makes this story, this narrative, ring so true to life. Is that I think we all carry that same moral complexity within us. We we want to do the right thing, but there is never this purely altruistic motive driving us. There's something we want to get out of it, even though it may seem like the very humble and generous thing to do. And, you know, maybe I overstated it earlier when I said she would be in poverty if 
her father disinherited her, but you're right, she does have her own 10000 a year, which is, uh, you know, everyone seems to think that's plenty of money. He could have had that. He does, yeah. in a way, choose to both abandon her and go and live on his own for in 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 he he's the one who's actually in poverty for quite a few years before he comes back. Mm-hmm. Did he really do that because he it was either thirty thousand or zero? Uh, you know, it does bring his maybe some honor back to him in in a way. I hadn't really considered that angle. Well, he could also, I mean, to take uh, her father's position, he could have looked at the ten thousand, looked at all the opportunities cropping up in California and been like, well, maybe I can do better out there. Cause I mean, a hundred years yeah. ago from uh, 1949 would be right in the gold rush. And so there certainly stories are reaching the East of young men making their fortunes. And then, you know, maybe he crashes out there and it's like, well, 10,000 ain't so bad after all. Um, <laughs> but uh, just yeah. the fact that Catherine couldn't be honest with him the night that they're supposed to run off together. And she could have, said, you know, well, this is what my father said to me. I found out he secretly loathes me and has been so cruel. And maybe that would have made all the difference. Maybe it wouldn't have. But at any rate, it's just part of the problem she keeps facing where she is, she knows what she wants, but can't articulate it fully to anybody. And so she's going to keep just digging herself in these holes. Well, you know, the minutes are flying by. I guess I'd like to hear a little bit more about your thoughts about some of the, you know, like William Wyler. Let's, let's, let's talk about him for just a quick minute. I mean, this is the film he made right after uh, the best years of our lives and, and his own experiences as a filmmaker during World War II. Uh, what do you think? I guess he, he saw this stage production in New York, and that's what kind of won him over to say, this is my next film. But, you know, he's he's such a, you know, obviously a legendary director and, and probably most famous now for his huge, big budget productions, you know, the Ben-Hur and all that kind of thing. But I don't know. Do you guys have thoughts? I, I'm, I'm just kind of coming to grips with Weiler as a filmmaking, you know, master. He's, he's This is his first Criterion film. So um, I, I understand some of those big spectacles might be harder for them to obtain, but... I don't know. What are your thoughts about the director and, and his hand in, in putting this film together? Yeah, I mean, I love William Wyler. I actually am not very familiar with his big spectacles. I'm mostly familiar with the stuff he did in the 30s and 40s, uh, which are at once modest in their own way. I mean, compared to certainly, I'm sure, Ben-Hur, um, but also have a certain scope to them. Uh, stuff like Dodsworth or uh, these three or Jezebel, stuff that's uh, the letter. Uh, oh yeah, Mrs. Miniver. Mrs. Miniver. Yeah, yeah. Right, he's done a right. lot of great stuff, but uh, mm-hmm. stuff that's I guess pretty character focused. And so what I I think of him mostly is just getting, uh, if not the absolute best performance, then one of the best performances of any cast member he worked with. Uh, you know, he worked with Miriam Hopkins in these three decades. Yeah, over a decade before. Um, which was kind of a bold adaptation at the time. It was based on a play about uh, lesbianism that, of course, they had to change greatly in which Weiler would later adapt more faithfully into the children's hour uh, with actually Miriam Hopkins in a fine supporting role. Um, But I think this film is evidence of all his talents, especially in regards to performances. I mean, everyone is so perfectly toned and cued and playing off each other so well. You never get the sense that anyone's either, you know, running away with the movie or that they're holding anything back. Uh, He really draws out the emotional center and doesn't uh, kind of bury it in aesthetics while also choosing 
the perfect camera angle for each scene. You know, uh, there's a sense of perspective to each scene, a sense of us seeing it from a certain character's point of view while still opening up to others. Right now, I tend to watch the movies as we're talking about them. And right now, there's the scene where immediately following uh, Austin kind of telling off Morris and them having their kind of uh, truthful man-to-man talk. And then Catherine comes running down the stairs to kind of persuade her father. And the way that Wyler switches perspectives between, frankly, just Morris and Austin throughout the scene while keeping Catherine in the center between them both speaks to the way she's kind of torn between the two of them and lets us see the scene from their points of view. Uh, it's kind of a simple film grammar stuff, but it's really effective. Yeah, and I, yeah, I felt I was in the hand of a complete master. Go ahead, Trevor. Yeah, well, I, I, I agree. <laughs> um, you said it very well, uh, both of you. And the editing, too, I think is really key to having... He has such control for this story because in order to convey all of this psychological complexity and contradiction and still make it make sense, he just has to know this material in and out um, and add to it with his hand on the, you know, the, the direction. But also, I think the editing, he knows how to linger on certain moments to add to that... Uh, complexity. I'm thinking of the moment when uh, Morris first meets Catherine, and she walks away because he wants to go and see her the next day, and she's gone, and the camera just stands there and watches Morris for, you know, a few seconds, which, you know, is quite a while for that kind of thing. As you start to, it starts to dawn on you, is he, like, in love and lingering his gaze because of his love? Or is he sizing her up and getting ready for the challenge? And then the editing kind of starts to, to, it fades just at the right moment. And I swear at the end of it, it looks like he kind of grins in a, in a way that I would find appealing, like he is in love. But I'm not sure he does. I mean, there's just, there's, there are a lot of little touches and I just, I can't imagine having the skills and the ability to control a story so much that you can allow those things to slip in. You'd, you'd want to have, you know, I think the inclination is to strip out um, a lot of this and make it more direct, more straightforward, because it's just easier to tell a story that way that succeeds. But this one is so successful because of all that's going on around everything, underneath the surface of both the dialogue, but also the performances and the, the camera direction. You know, where he's putting things, how long he's on certain shots. Um, how How is Catherine behaving when Morris is in the room? How often is she leaning away from him versus, you know, him leaning into her even? You know, just he, he's able to to create, I think, and really direct these these folks in, in just ways that really serve the story and never, to me, detract. Well, and also this is a film that takes place almost entirely within one house and never feels like just film theater stage bound at all. It feels right. lively and exciting and tense and involving. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should also just talk about Olivia de Havilland. I mean, she's just really so incredibly uh, powerful and nuanced in all of this. And um, still around. A, a be- yeah, yeah well, exactly. <laughs> right. And, but such a beautiful actress and, and, yeah, they kind of make her look like Alfalfa from the Little Rascals. I, I kind of <laughs> had that. 
I had that realization the other day, and it's like, I can't unsee that now, the way her hair is slicked back, and even that kind of startled... You've poisoned the water again, David. (laughs) (laughs) But... But yeah, I, I, yeah, just that's just just, the just side call side you Doctor Sloper. <laughs> but it's it's an amazing performance, and she is a remarkable woman. I do love the uh, interview with her uh, later in life. Although you, know, you might say those were her middle aged years when uh, this was, she was in her seventies, I believe. And like you're right, she's over a hundred years old. But giving a very nice look back on her career, and she talks about the heiress at some length. Is that with uh, is it with Dick Cavett or or no? It's, it's it wasn't interview. Dick Cavett. I can't remember. I it watched it, no. but I don't it remember the interview. But no, I remember her and her poise and her grace and her tactfulness. Uh, she's a true queen of cinema. Uh, Scott, anything that you want to add before we start to wrap up? Uh, no, uh, David said it well about De Havilland, who's yeah, just one of those actresses who's so great. And as I think they point out, one of the supplements so often uh, cast at least uh, when she got a little bit past her prime, is these kind of like plain women, even though she's plainly gorgeous. Uh, that's mm-hmm. uh, that's classic Hollywood for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you, yeah. David? Anything um, Anything as we head out uh, into the no, night? No, I, I just, I do appreciate Criterion getting their hands on these, you know, Hollywood classics. Of course, we're recording on the 15th with two Betty Davis mm-hmm. films just added to the collection or just announced. Uh, now Voyager and All About Eve. So, it, I you know because uh, you know I've I've been spending a lot of time over these past decade really watching Criterion films. I, I really do appreciate when I get a chance to take a good sustained look at these kind of legends of of Hollywood that in in years past really never had a shot at coming into the collection. Uh, it feels like yeah they they've got their angles now and it's really wonderful. This this was a this is a brand new discovery to me. I know it's a very well known film and very beloved in many circles, uh, but yeah, really one of my absolute favorites in recent years as far as uh, this is what movie making is all about on that kind of high level, you know, uh, you know this is classic Hollywood at its finest. Yeah, it was my turn or my turn. It was my first uh, time watching it as well, and boy. I, w- I wasn't necessarily expecting a masterpiece, but this is my favorite Criterion release of the year so far, and I've watched most of them. I just I just adored everything about it, and I, I've already watched it a few times since, which, you know, I, I don't tend to rewatch things as much these days as I used to, so it was really nice Well, we've to have had that. so many stops and starts with scheduling. <laughs> <laughs> we've had to rewatch you guys it are like, Trevor's not fresh. coming again tonight? You know, sitting there with your bags <laughs> oh, we, packed, ready to go... Over there weaving in the corner, but we got it done. (laughs) (laughs) We did, and it feels good to get back together. Yes, it does. Very nice. All right. Well, fellas, good night. And um, listeners, we we do hope to get these a little bit more regular, as we've said in the past. (laughs) And we we do intend to. We've got a lot of good things that we're, we're planning on in the future, and we hope you'll join us. Thanks so much. You know what it means? No. The joy. Last, but a 
short time. The pains of love last all your life. It's a lovely song.